So I want you to think about the last time that you desired something different than someone else. <laughs> probably wasn't very long ago, probably this morning. When was a time that you wanted something different than somebody else? When, when was a time when you wanted to be great or greater than someone else? Or maybe, maybe it was a time when you wanted to be first. <laughs> and I wanna think about what's going on in our minds in those situations when the question is how do we get power and how do we wield power? And I know a lot of y'all are well-versed in the scriptures and you already know where I'm going, that I'm gonna be in Mark 10, 45, where he's telling us if you wanna lead, you have to serve. But the Lord connected some dots for me this week in a new way that it's not just about sort of greatness in my vocation or in my spiritual influence or anything, but also in my own home. What does it mean to want power and how do I get that power and how do I wield that power? And even now, some of you are so smart and so mature in your faith that you still know exactly where we're going. But I wanna try to use a word that's even a little more subtle. Like what about the word influence? How, how do we influence the people in our own home, whenever there's something that I want that they do not, in what ways do I take the influence, the abilities that the Lord has given me to influence other people in a way that maybe he doesn't want? And by the way, for me to choose to not use my influence, my ability to influence, really has nothing to do with whether or not the other person is right. And I'll just put that out there for now and then connect those dots later. But think about the different ways that you use the God-given gifts and abilities that you have to influence people, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your relationships, maybe in your own home, when you and your spouse want something different, when you and your, your child want something different, when you and your parent want something different. And I wanna encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And really what we're talking about is power. And you think about the disciples following Jesus, they wrestled a lot with God's, with Jesus's perspective on power. And I'm very sympathetic to them and their perceptions and how they conflicted with what Jesus was saying because it was very biblical, because they're right to think that the coming Messiah is going to rule and reign 
in justice and equity and that he would do so in a very powerful, conquering way. Like he's literally gonna show up on a battle horse with a blood-soaked robe in the blood of his enemies. And here they are under the thumb of Rome and they see this guy that they're connecting dots going, this is our Messiah. And they're thinking, what does this mean for power? Certainly this means that the oppressors will be put down and we will be put up and we will be given power to exercise. Certainly that's what this means. And Jesus is in the ongoing process of redefining for them what power looks like. And look in Mark chapter 10, and starting in verse 15, you can just kind of scan even just the subheadings. First, he's talking about children. And he says, if you don't enter the kingdom like a child, you're not gonna enter. And they think, what child? Like, certainly I'm more important than a child for back then. And then he goes on to the rich young ruler who walks away sad because of his great wealth. And Jesus says, man, it's with great difficulty that you enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're thinking, man, if the rich guy who we thought was a shoe in can't get in, then what is going on? And those who have left everything will receive a hundredfold in my kingdom. So it's losing stuff. And then he goes on to say, the first will be last and the last will be first. And they're thinking, what? I don't want to be last. I want to be first. And then you look in verse 33 and Jesus tells them very clearly what's going to happen to him. Yes, I'm Messiah, but it's time to redefine what Messiah means. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. This is what the power of Messiah looks like. This is how it's manifested. And yes, I am going to rise from the dead. And it's funny, right after that, James and John, it's like they don't know what to do with all this suffering stuff, so they just kind of skip over that and go right to the, he, when he rises and comes in his kingdom, and they go, okay, okay, so about the kingdom stuff, when you come, can I sit on your right and him on your left? And he's like, guys, you don't, you don't get what I'm trying to say to you. And the other 10 disciples, then in verse 41, they get mad at them. They're indignant at them for asking that question about how to rule and reign with Jesus. And the other 10 are not mad because James and John don't get it. They're mad because they thought of it first. <laughs> because they're the one like, okay, yeah, we all want that, but you're not supposed to just ask for it. We're supposed to follow, do our best, and hope for the best, right? But they spoke up and said, put us on the right and the left. And they were indignant and they all don't get it. So Jesus has to redefine for them what does it look like to receive and to exercise power. And starting in verse 42, verse 42 is gonna be how not to be great. Verse 43 is gonna be how to be great. And then verse 45 is gonna be the why, why this is how we are to be great instead of the other. Or more specifically, this is, verse 45 is how Jesus was great. So let's look at verse 42. I'm just gonna read the whole, what is it? Um, five verses, for, four verses first. 
And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So first here in verse 42, Jesus is talking to his disciples and look at what he says. You know, that word is also a verb of seeing. It's seeing and knowing. So it's like, this thing that you guys have seen lived out over and over again, that you know this just from your personal experience, that the Gentiles rule in a certain way. You, you have seen and you know that those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and they're great ones, exercise authority over them. So notice the word considered, or it can be thought to Rule The ones who are perceived as the ones with all the power. I think that's interesting because there's no mention of actual authority given. These are people that are looked at as the ones ruling and who are the ones that are in control. And notice the verbs, lorded over them can also be translated just simply subdue. These people who look to be in charge over the Gentiles, they subdue the people and their great ones exercise authority over them or that can simply mean wield power over them. So the people of the Gentiles, this means I'm not talking about people who follow Yahweh, who follow Jesus. Everybody else, you look at them, how do they do it? The ones who everybody sees has perceived power, how do they do it? They're bullies, they're, they're subduing people and they're wielding their power over them. And it's implied, how do these people get power who were perceived as the ones having power? By force. These are people who forced their way to the top. And so he says to his disciples or who are grappling with the idea of how do we get on top? Jesus, you're headed to the top and we want to be on top with you. How do we do it? And he cuts right to their heart and he says, look, the way they do it is not the way we're going to do it. It's not the way I'm going to do it. It's why it says here in verse 43, this is how to be great. It starts with the word but. That's a contrast word, which is him saying, the way it works for them, that is not how it works with you and how it works with me. We are different. And he says it straight to him. Why? Because he knows what they're being tempted with. He knows that it's so tempting to just use what is at your disposal to put yourself on top, especially when it lines up with scripture or when it lines up with yours, 
what we are so convinced is right. If I'm, if I'm sure that I'm right and God's given me this path to stair step up, shouldn't I take that path? And the answer is not necessarily. He says that is not how we're going to do it. That's not how we're going to get power and that's not how we're going to use power. And notice it says, but whoever would be great among you and whoever would be first among you. So that word would be can also be wish or want or desire. This is whoever wishes or desires to be on top. Whoever wants that. And this is, the verb is the subjunctive mood, which just means that's not something that's actual reality right now. This is painting a theoretical picture. It's saying, if this person wants to be the one in charge, there's only one way that that's gonna happen. And here's how it is. If you want to be great, the only way that's gonna happen is to be the servant. With Jesus, the fastest way to the top is straight to the bottom. See also Joseph, who went from the bottom of a pit to the bottom of a dungeon in prison up to the second in all of Egypt. See also Moses, a shepherd out in the wilderness an outcast on the run from the law <laughs> to exalted on a mountain hanging out with Yahweh in a cloud. See also Daniel down into a lion's den, exalted to power. See also Jesus who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, humbled himself became a servant and obeyed even to the point of death. And Jesus exalted him to the highest place. I mean, the father exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knew about, every tongue confess. The way to the top, straight to the bottom. And notice in verses 43 and 44, there's these two parallel statements, but see what he's doing, where it says, if you would be great, be your servant. Whoever would be first, be the slave. What's he doing there? Why is he saying the same thing? Not really, look at what he's doing. He's saying, there, there's sort of a progression of extent there. He says, look, if you wanna be great, you gotta be a servant. And that is diakonos. That's where we get our word deacon. It just means serve. It's you, you don't exist for your own needs, but to serve the needs of others. If you want to be great, and this word great, it's the same word used for the Gentiles. They're great ones. This is how they do it. But if you want to be great, then you got to serve. However, if you want to be first, you got to be a slave. So the idea here is that, uh, a, a diakonos 
it's your choice whether or not you're gonna serve. And then if you're a, a doulos, you've completely surrendered. You no longer have any say over yourself and your life and you've given up all of your rights. So it goes, if you wanna be great, be a servant. You wanna be first, you gotta go all the way to the bottom. You gotta be a slave and not just to some, but to all. It's so counterintuitive. And now verse 45, why is it this way? Why is it that we can't just use what God gave us? Why can't we just use, apply some pressure or just some strategy or some plan to get our way? Why is it? that instead we serve and we become a slave? It's because this is the way of Jesus. Look at verse 45. Four, four is answering the question why. Why does it have to be this way? For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what you have here, the verb came, this is an aorist verb, which is just sort of a snapshot saying he came. It's not the main focus of what he's trying to say. It's followed by three infinitive phrases. One is, and infinitives are the two verbs. He came not to be served, but he came to serve and to give. It's like if I said, I came up here not to explain what I want the text to say. I came up here to explain what the text says and hopefully to exalt Jesus. So the point is not that I came up here. The point is why am I up here? And here, Jesus came, why? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is why, it's emphasizing the purpose. Why did he come? To serve, which is just insane. And I love how Jesus speaks like an Eastern sage with this. He speaks in parables and pictures and uh, it reminds me of my English teacher who encouraged me to beef up my vocabulary because uh, if you have a small vocabulary, when you insult people, you have to run away. But if you have a broader vocabulary, you can insult people and walk away because they, they have to chew on it for a while and figure out, and this is how Jesus spoke. He would just drop these truth bombs that were not on the face. They were somehow didn't quite flow as naturally as intuitive, especially for a Western mind. And I feel like this is one of those statements that honestly, every time I try to quote this verse, I say it wrong. And I don't think it just flows naturally. Uh, he, he did not come, I have to stop every time and go, he did not come to be served. And I had a friend 
one of my uh, favorite youth leaders of all times and friend, Kyle Atwater, he was doing a, a skit with us at a youth retreat one time and he was Jesus in the robe and everything. And he said, and it came out wrong. He goes, I, the son of man did not come to serve, but to serve, <laughs> which is all you can do. You just stick to your guns. You can't flip it and go not to, okay. But it's just funny to me because this is, it's so, it's hard for me to say, and it is just so hard for us to process. It is this upside down logic of the kingdom and it's counterintuitive. It makes no sense for the Messiah, the king of the universe. The word who spoke it all into existence to come and not demand that every knee bow and not just force every tongue confess. That's what makes sense. This doesn't make any sense. Why did he come? He came to serve. It's bizarre and it's beautiful. And notice it says, even the son of man. Notice that word, even. Even the son of man came. Which means if there was ever a person who had a legitimate enough authority and right and privilege to demand to be served, would it not be the Messiah in the flesh? Would it not be him? But even he did not come and demand so this is saying, this is a new way of, this is a new kind of kingdom. If even the top of the top isn't demanding to be served, then how much more you and I? We're not here to be served. We're not here to get our way. We're not here to use what God gave us to get what we want. Even he, how much more are we here with a purpose to serve and not to be served? And I just want you to think for a minute, how did Jesus serve? And if you're like me, the first thing that comes to my mind is him with his disciples, taking off his robe, putting a towel around his waist, washing their feet. And I think that's a beautiful picture of him serving. But it's not just that. That is the epitome of an entire life lived in humility. It's, it's the epitome of the character and heart of who he is that he would humbly serve. He served in his incarnation, in how he came, that he came at all. And on a donkey into the city, before that being born in a manger, in a away from an all nowhere town. 
And the way that he would heal and enter into the space of the untouchables, he, he was serving. The way that he would teach and in a new way with authority, he was serving. The way that he gave himself over to be arrested and rejected and mocked and ridiculed and crucified. He was serving. And in his resurrection, he was serving. It's an entire life and it's a characteristic of service. How much more are we to serve? And that would be a pretty amazing verse if there was a period right there. But mine has a comma and the word and, which means we're not done yet. What, what else did he come for? He came to give. And I love this this reminds me of John three sixteen, and it makes me think, who gave Jesus? God loved you so much, and all of us, that he gave his son. And here Jesus, the son of man, gave his life. And realize when it says give, it doesn't say loan, and it doesn't say entrust with a lot of stipulations. It's not like your dad giving you the keys to the car and saying, bring it back and there not, better not be a scratch on it. That's not what this is. He gave knowing that it meant rejection and suffering and death. He gave. And what did he give? His life. The father gave the life of his son. Jesus gave his own life. And what did he, what did he give it as? He gave it as a ransom. A ransom for many. The word for means in place of many. A ransom in place of many. Something to be paid in place of many, instead of many paying. Jesus gave his life as a ransom. And the reason, the way that the Lord led my heart to this uh, text is I was reading, reading in Isaiah, uh, and I came across this word ransom, and I realized I don't really know what that word means, and I started studying, and it brought me here to ransom, because when I think of ransom, I, I think of movies where somebody kidnaps somebody and then sends a letter with magazine cut article, uh, letters, and it's a letter demanding payment for the release of this captive. And uh, there's actually some pretty helpful pictures there. Uh, the New Testament word for ransom is a noun that just simply means the price of release price of release, which right on the face of it, in, 
implies or necessitates that you have a captive that is only released when a price is paid. There is a ransom that must be paid. The Old Testament word for ransom that I ran across in Isaiah is a verb that means to release from, and it could be many things. It's pretty fluid. The word can be used to release from an obligation, to release from a punishment, to release from ownership, to release from slavery. And you put all those together with God's people then and now when he releases someone, he releases us from the slavery of sin. But that only happens when a price is paid. There is a ransom that must be paid. And this is the way of Jesus. To humble himself, to be the servant, to be the slave, to die as a ransom. For Jesus, the road to the crown only goes through the cross. There's no other way. And why does it have to be that way? Why? I know and we know that this is the way of Jesus to be the servant, but why? Certainly, he's modeling for us the new covenant and the new kingdom, the new kingdom values, things are different now. Certainly, this is the plan that gives the Father the most glory. Certainly, this is just a manifestation and an expression of the nature of a good, holy king. And the reason why it has to be this way is because there is a price that must be paid. And Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many other lives in place of my life and in place of yours. What does this, what does it look like to be ransomed? This is what I ran across in my reading this week, and I want you to keep your finger there in Mark, but turn over to Isaiah chapter 35. And this is a passage about the return of exiled Israel. And it is about Israel, and it is emblematic of the return of all of God's people. This passage is a summation of all of the prophetic hope of the Old Testament 
of all streaming into the temple, which is Jesus Christ himself enthroned. So as we read this, I want to encourage you, try not to be caught up or tripped up on how exactly or when exactly does this happen, but try to just believe what we read here. And, and if you in any way are experiencing right now any sort of discouragement, pain, disillusionment, suffering, waiting, feeling neglected, feeling weak, just let the good truth of this wash over you and I want you to picture lots of tributaries, God's own people, all the nations, us converging into one stream, pouring into the person of Jesus at his return. Let's let this wash over it, us and believe it. Isaiah 35 verse one. And I hope this will help us understand a little bit more of what it means to be ransomed. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall bloom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there. That's good news for me, by the way. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed the ones who've been bought shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isn't that good news?
so what does it mean to be ransomed? First, it means that we needed to be ransomed. It means that we were captives and we were in a place or a season of, if being ransomed means gladness and joy, then look at what in need of ransom means. There's a place of sorrow and sighing and anxious hearts, weak hands, feeble knees. But he has ransomed us. He has paid the price to rescue us that we may return to him. So wherever you are, if you are in Christ, if you've surrendered to him, if you believe in him, you have been ransomed. (laughs) And I just have to ask, are you living like it? Are you believing that you have been ransomed? And if not, if you're not believing it, he paid the ransom price. What, did it not work? Or are we not believing it? And notice it says in Mark 10.45, His life is a ransom for many. It doesn't say all. So what's the difference between the many and the ain'ts? It's do you believe? Maybe it's time for you for the first time ever to finally stop trying to be in control of your life and just surrender to Jesus. The price has been paid. How do we get what we wish? How do we get to be great or first in our home? Well, serve and die. And part of what that might mean is if there's a way that you can get what you want through either active or passive aggression or subtle or not so subtle means just because you can doesn't mean you should. If God has given you a strategic mind or has given you great ideas or uh, other whether, however, to influence, maybe he's calling you to serve and die rather than get your way. And it occurs to me that just like Jesus pays the ransom and sets us free, I wonder if, if we die, if we don't help set someone free. And what I mean by that is you you look at Jesus, in order to manifest his greatness, he served, and to be first among us, he became a doulos. As it says in Philippians 2, 
a servant, a slave, and he paid the ransom for his enemy, me, set me free. And uh, was Jesus wrong when he died for me? And that, that seems like a really crazy question, right? Of course he wasn't wrong. He was right. But see, so often, whenever I'm trying to decide if I'm gonna lead by force or serve through sacrifice, I'm tempted with the thought of, well, I would give in if they were right. I would give in if they were doing what they're supposed to do. But as it stands, I'm right. Therefore, I will not yield. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't operate that way? That's the whole point. It had to be him because we would not. We as far as paying our ransom price, we would not if we could, and we could not even if we would. It had to be Jesus. We were wrong and he was right. And he served and he gave his life as a ransom. And what if, instead of me insisting on my own way, what if for the other person in my home, at work, whatever. What if I took on myself the consequences of their choice? And what if in that act of removing that burden from them, that's finally what the Lord used to set them free? I'm just trying to encourage us to think through and press into the way of Jesus the person of Jesus as it stands often diametrically opposed of what is so intuitive and comes so naturally for us and what's so encouraged in, our, in the world around us and in the counsel we often receive. One more thought before I close, is it wrong to desire greatness? Have y'all ever thought about this when studying this passage? Is it wrong to desire greatness? Because he doesn't say don't desire greatness. He actually gives a how-to. If you desire greatness, this is how to go about it. Do you see that? but does, it feels kind of strange to think through, is it okay to want to be great or want to be first? Well, look at Jesus. Does Jesus want to be great? Yes. Does Jesus want to be first? That's tricky. Yes and no. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. 
Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. So what happens at the end, after God has given everything into subjection under the feet of Jesus as king. And finally, every knee has bowed and every tongue confessed. What does Jesus do? He takes that kingdom that the Lord has been building and he gives it to the Father. Did you see that? Let me read it again. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying, sorry, the kingdom to God, the Father. Jesus gives the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. And why does he do it? Verse eight tells us so that, verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 15, so that God may be all in all. Jesus wants to be great and he wants to be first so that he can build a kingdom. And when he has his full kingdom of priests, he gives that whole kingdom to the father. So he wants to be great and he wants to be first so that he can make the father great and the father first. It's not for himself. And so, is it okay to want to be great and to want to be first? I'm more comfortable, let's just talk about the great one. Is it okay to want to be great? It better be in the exact same way, the exact same reason that Jesus wants to be great and the exact same means that he went about it. If you want to be great, it better be because you're pouring into, investing into, and building up the kingdom of Yahweh and not your own kingdom. Not what you want, but what he wants. If you're striving for that greatness, for his greatness, then okay, and you better go about it exactly the way he did it, which was not to be served, not to have his own way, but to serve even to the point of death. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. Can you imagine if we lived like this? What if every time we wanted something, instead of using our faculties to bring it into existence. What if, instead of trying to influence, what if we just go all in on the person of Jesus Christ and being found in him and walking and loving and serving like him and actually trust him.
to give whatever he wants and to know, I want this thing. I'm gonna trust you, Jesus. You might give me this thing. And even if you don't, I trust you because you are better. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, will you please just reprogram our hearts and our minds and our flesh everything about you (laughs) is so uh, refreshingly different and beautiful in light of the world around us and in light of the instincts of our flesh in our natural state you are so different and so much more glorious and so much better And I thank you that you have given us the mind of Christ. And I thank you that what we really desire is not our own way, but yours. Will you help us just to live in greater surrender and greater faith in you? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for ransoming me, setting me free. Please help us to not be people who have been set free and look to oppress or force or subdue others. You've set us free and we can trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.